Chapter 16 of the Defiant Agents. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by R.J. Davis. The Defiant Agents by Andre Norton. Chapter 16. At first, as one second and then two passed, and there was no response to the pressure, Travis thought he had mistaken the reading of the tape. Then directly before his eyes, a dark line cut vertically down the wall. He applied more pressure until his fingers were half numb with effort. The line widened slowly. Finally, he faced a slit some eight feet in height, a little more than two in width. And there the opening remained. Light beyond. A cold gray gleam, like that of a cloudy winter day on Terra, and with it the chill of air out of some arctic wasteland. Favoring his still bandaged side, Travis scraped through the door ahead of the others and came into the place of gray cold. Wah! Travis heard that explanation from Julie, could have echoed it himself, except that he was too astounded by what he had seen to say anything at all. The light came from a grid of bars set far above their heads into the native rock which roofed this storehouse. For storehouse it was. There were orderly lines of boxes, some large enough to contain a tank, others no bigger than a man's fist. Symbols in the same blue-green-purple lights of the outer wall shone from their sides. What? Buck began one question and then changed it to another. Where do we begin to look? Toward the far end. Travis started down the center aisle between rows of the massed spoils of another time and world, or worlds. The same tape which had given him the clue to the unlocking of the door emphasized the importance of something stored at the far end, an object or objects which must be used first. He had wondered about that tape, a sensation of urgency almost of despair, had come through the gabble of alien words, the quick sequence of diagrams and pictures. The message might have been taped under a threat of some great peril. There was no dust on the rows of boxes or on the floor underfoot. A current of cold, fresh air blew at intervals down the length of the huge chamber. They could not see the next aisle across the barriers of stored goods but the only noise was a whisper and the faint sounds of their own feet. They came out into an open space backed by the wall, and Travis saw what had been so important. No! His protest was involuntary, but his denial loud enough to echo. Six? Six of them. Tall, narrow cases set upright against the wall, and from their depths five pairs of dark eyes staring back at him in cold measurement. These were the men of the ships, the men Minlak had dreamed of. Their bald white heads, their thin bodies with the skin-tight covering of the familiar blue-green-purple, five of them were here, alive, watching, waiting. Five men and six boxes. That small fact broke the spell in which those eyes held Travis. He looked again at the sixth box to his right, expecting to meet another pair of eyes this time. He was disconcerted to face only emptiness. 
Then, as his gaze traveled downward, he saw what lay on the floor there. A skull, a tangle of bones, tattered material, cobwebbed into dusty rags by time. Whatever had preserved five of the star men intact had failed the sixth of their company. They are alive, Jill Lee whispered. I do not think so, Buck answered. Travis took another step, reached out to touch the transparent front of the nearest coffin case. There was no change in the eyes of the alien who stood with him, no indication that if the Apaches could see him, he would be able to return their interest. The five stairs, which had bemused the visitors at first, did not break to follow their movements. But Travis knew, whether it was some message on the tape which the sight of the sleepers made clear, or whether some residue of the driving purpose which had set them there now reached his mind, was immaterial. He knew the purpose of this room and its contents, why it had been made, and the reason its six guardians had been left as prisoners, and what they wanted from anyone coming after them. They sleep, he said softly. Sleep? Buck caught him up. They sleep in something like deep freeze. Do you mean they can be brought to life again? Julie cried. Maybe not now. It must be too long. But they were meant to wait out a period and be restored? How do you know that? Buck asked. I don't know for certain, but I think I understand a little. Something happened a long time ago. Maybe it was a war, a war between whole star systems bigger and worse than anything we can imagine. I think this planet was an outpost, and when the supply ships didn't come anymore, when they knew they might be cut off for some length of time, they closed down, stacked their supplies and machines here, and then went to sleep to wait for their rescuers. For rescuers who never came, Julie said softly, and there's a chance they could be revived even now. Travis shivered. Not one I would want to take. No, Buck's tone was sober. That I agree to, younger brother. These are not men as we know them, and I do not think they would be good Dalunbayatai, allies. They had go and die in plenty, these star men. But it is not the power of the people. No one but a madman or a fool would try to disturb this sleep of theirs. The truth you speak, Julie agreed. But where is this? He turned his shoulder to the sleeping star men and looked back at the filled chamber. Do we find anything which will serve us here and now? Again, Travis had only the scrappiest information to draw upon. Spread out, he told them. Look for the marking of a circle surrounding four dots set in a diamond pattern. They went but Travis lingered for a moment to look once more into the bleak and bitter eyes of the star men. How many planet years ago had they sealed themselves into those boxes? A thousand? Ten thousand? Their empire was long gone, yet here was an outpost still waiting to be revived to carry on its mysterious duties. It was as if in Saxon invaded Britain long ago, a Roman garrison had been frozen to await the return of the legions. Buck was right. There was no common ground today between Terran man and these unknowns. 
they must continue to sleep undisturbed. Yet when Travis also turned away and went back down the aisle, he was still aware of a persistent pull on him to return. It was as though those eyes had set locking cords to wheel him back to release the sleepers. He was glad to turn a corner, to know that they could no longer watch him plunder their treasure. Here, that was Buck's voice, but it echoed so oddly across the big chamber that Travis had difficulty in deciding what part of the warehouse it was coming from. And Buck had to call several times before Travis and Jill Lee joined him. There was a circle dot diamond symbol shining on the side of a case. They worked it out of the pile, setting it in the open. Travis knelt to run his hands along the top. The container was an unknown alloy, tough, unmarked by the years, perhaps indestructible. Again his fingers located what his eyes could not detect. The impressions on the edge, oddly shaped depressions into which his fingertips did not fit too comfortably. He pressed, bearing down with the full strength of his arms and shoulders, and then lifted up the lid. The Apaches looked into a set of compartments, each holding an object with a barrel, a hand grip, a general resemblance to the sidearms of their own world and time, but sufficiently different to point up the essential strangeness. With infinite care, Travis worked one out of the vice support which held it. The weapon was light in weight, lighter than any automatic he had ever held. Its barrel was long, a good eighteen inches, the grip alien in shape so that it didn't fit comfortably into his hand. The trigger non-existent, but in its place a button on the lower part of the barrel, which could be covered by an outstretched finger. What does it do? asked Buck practically. I'm not sure, but it is important enough to have a special mention on the tape. Travis passed the weapon along to Buck and worked another loose from its holder. No way of loading, I can see, Buck said, examining the weapon with care and caution. I don't think it fires a solid projectile, Travis replied. We'll have to test them outside to find out just what we do have. The Apaches only took three of the weapons, closing the box before they left, and as they wiggled back through the cracked door, Travis was visited again by that odd flash of compelling, almost possessive power he had experienced when they had lain in ambush for the red hunting party. He took a step or two forward until he was able to catch the edge of the reading table and steady himself against it. What is the matter? Both Buck and Jill Lee were watching him. Apparently neither had felt that sensation. Travis did not reply for a second. He was free of it now, but he was sure of its source. It had not been any backlash of the red collar. It was rooted here, a compulsion triggered to make the original intentions of the outpost obeyed, a last drag from the sleepers. This place had been set up with a single purpose, to protect and preserve the ancient rulers of Topaz, and perhaps the very presence here of the intruding Terrans had released a force, started an unseen installation. Now Travis answered simply, they want out. 
Julie glanced back at the slit door, but Buck still watched Travis. They call? he asked. In a way, Travis admitted, but the compulsions had already ebbed. He was free. It is gone now. This is not a good place, Buck observed somberly. We touch that which should not be held by men of our earth. He held out the weapon. Did not the people take up the rifles as the pendiculi for their defense when it was necessary, Julie demanded. We do what we must. After seeing that, his chin indicated the slit and what lay behind it. Do you wish the reds to forage here? Still, Buck's words came slowly. This is a choice between two evils, rather than between an evil and a good. Then let us see how powerful this evil is. Julie headed for the corridor leading to the pillar. It was late afternoon when they made their way through the swirling mist of the valley under the archway giving on the former site of the outlaw Tartar camp. Travis sighted the long barrel of the weapon at a small bush backed by a boulder, and he pressed the firing button. There was no way of knowing whether the weapon was loaded except to try it. The result of his action was quick, quick and terrifying. There was no sound, no sign of any projectile, ray gas, or whatever might have issued in answer to his finger movement. But the bush, the bush was no more. A black smear made a ragged outline of the extinguished branches and leaves on the rock which it stood behind. The earth might still enclose roots under a thin coating of ash, but the bush was gone. The breath of Nayanzani, powerful beyond belief. Buck broke their horrified silence first. In truth, evil is here. Julie raised his gun, if gun it could be called aimed at the rock with the bush silhouette plain to be seen and fired. This time they were able to witness disintegration in progress. The crumble of the stone as if its substance was no more than sand lapped by river water. A pile of blackened rubble remained, nothing more. To use this on a living thing, Buck protested, horror basing the doubt in his voice. We do not use it against living things. Travis promised, but against the ship of the Reds, to cut that to pieces. This will open the shell of the turtle and let us at its meat. Julie nodded. Those are true words. But now I agree with your fears of this place, Travis. This is a devil thing and must not be allowed to fall into the hands of those who will use it more freely than we plan to, Buck wanted to know. We reserve to ourselves that right because we hold our motives higher. To think that way is also a crooked trail. We will use this means because we must, but afterward? Afterward, that warehouse must be closed. The tapes giving the entrance clue destroyed. One part of Travis fought that decision, right though he knew it to be. The towers were the menace he had believed. And what was more discouraging than the risk they now ran was the belief that the treasure was a poison which could not be destroyed but which might spread from Topaz to Terra. Suppose the Western Conference had discovered that storehouse and explored its riches. Would they have been any less eager to exploit them 
As Buck had pointed out, one's own ideals could well supply reasons for violence. In the past, Terra had been racked by wars of religion, one fanatically held opinion opposed to another. There was no righteousness in such struggles, only fatal ends. The Reds had no right to this new knowledge, but neither did they. It must be locked against the meddling of fools and zealots. Taboo. Buck spoke that word with an emphasis they could appreciate. Knowledge must be set behind the invisible barriers of taboo, and that could work. These three, no more. We found no other weapons, Julie added a warning suggestion. No others, Buck agreed, and Travis echoed adding. We found tombs of the space people, and these were left with them. Because of our great need, we borrowed them. But they must be returned to the dead, or trouble will follow and they may only be used against the fortress of the Reds by us, who first found them and have taken unto ourselves the wrath of disturbed spirits. Well thought. That is an answer to give the people. The towers are the tombs of dead ones. When we return these, they shall be taboo. We are agreed, Buck asked. We are agreed. Buck tried his weapon on a sapling, saw it vanish into nothingness. None of the Apaches wanted to carry the strange guns against their bodies. The power made them objects of fear rather than arms to delight a warrior. And when they returned to their temporary camp, they laid all three on a blanket and covered them up. But they could not cover up the memories of what had happened to bush, rock, and tree. If such are their small weapons, Buck observed that evening, then what kind of things did they have to balance our heavy armament? Perhaps they were able to burn up worlds. That may be what happened elsewhere, Travis replied. We do not know what put an end to their empire. The capital planet we found on the first voyage had not been destroyed, but it had been evacuated in haste. One building had not even been stripped of its furnishings. He remembered the battle he had fought there, he and Ross Murdoch and the winged native, standing up to an attack of the ape things while the winged warrior had used his physical advantage to fly above and bomb the enemies with boxes snatched from the piles. And here they went to sleep in order to wait out some danger, time or disaster, they did not believe would be permanent, Buck mused. Terrace thought he would flee from the eyes of the sleepers throughout his dreams that night. But on the contrary, he slept heavily, finding it hard to rouse when Julie awakened him for his watch. But he was alert when he saw a four-footed shape flit out of the shadows, drink water from the stream, and shake itself vigorously in a spray of drops. Nagenta, he greeted the coyote. Trouble? He would have shouted that question, but he put a tight rein on his impatience and strove to communicate in the only method possible. No, what the coyote had come to report was not trouble, but the fact that the one he had been set to guard was headed back into the mountains, though others came with her, four others. Nalikiadu still watched their camp. Her mate had come for further orders. Travis squatted before the animal, cupped the coyote's jowls between his palms. Nagenta suffered his touch 
with only a small whine of uneasiness. With all his power of mental suggestion, Travis strove to reach the keen brain he knew was served by the yellow eyes looking into his. The others with Kadessa were to be led on, taken to the ship, but Kadessa must not suffer harm. When they reached a spot nearby, Travis thought of a certain rock beyond the pass. Then one of the coyotes was to go ahead to the ship, let the Apaches there know. Manuelita and Eskelta should also be warned by the sentry along the peaks, but additional alerting could not go amiss. Those four with Kadesa, they must reach the trap. What was that? Buck rolled out of his blanket. Nagenta, the coyote sped back into the dark again. The Reds had taken the bait. A party of at least four with Kadesa are moving into the foothills, heading south. But the enemy party was not the only one on the move. In the light of day, a sentry's mirror from a point in the peaks sent another warning down to their camp. Out in their mountain meadows, the Tatar outlaws were on horseback, moving towards the entrance of the Tower Valley. Buck knelt by the blanket covering the alien weapons. Now what? We'll have to stop them, Travis replied, but he had no idea of just how they would halt those determined Mongol horsemen. This concludes the reading of Chapter 16.